If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Humanity's hunger for land ownership has dramatically shaped our global history. That's the argument put forward by Simon Winchester in his new book, Land. I spoke to Simon to find out more about when our division of land began, how the seizure of it has heralded huge historical shifts, and what it really means to own land. Your book is all about land, the ownership of land and how it shaped human history. So, Before we go any further, can you give us some examples? What are some of the ways in which our desire to own land has shaped the human story? First of all, the whole concept of ownership, insofar that it creates boundaries, um, is important both in political terms and in human terms. And good Lord, the amount of grief and misery that has been caused by the existence of borders between countries. I mean, you can think of dozens of them, Northern Ireland, Israel, Palestine, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, Myanmar today. It's all about borders, and borders began to be created, oddly enough, in the West, we we assume now, probably in in places in England like Wiltshire, where farmers ploughed their fields back in the Bronze Age, thousands of years ago, and and the furrows that they created went in different directions. And where these 
adjoining furrows met like ripples in a pond. If you throw two stones into a pond, the ripples at some point will intersect. Where they intersect, the very earliest farmers created lines of stones or lines of sticks or a furrow to say, these are my furrows, those are your furrows. That was the first domestic border. I mean, we can maybe get on to international borders later. But the whole idea of borders quite literally shaped the map of the world, shaped the modern world, hence the subtitle of the book. What I realised when I started reading this book was how much we take land ownership for granted. I'd never really thought about the fact that it's possibly quite bizarre to claim ownership of land when you really think about it. And you kind of examine that in various different formats. But why do you think that this desire to own land rather than to just exist on it has come to dominate? Because not all societies, as you highlight, have had that desire. In fact, some societies have seen it as as a very futile mission. Indeed. I mean, the, the, it, it is the belief of most Native Americans where I live in the United States, most Aboriginals in Australia, most Maoris in New Zealand, that you can no more own the land than you can own the breeze or own the ocean. But it did come about that the concept of ownership for one essential reason, and that was efficiency of feeding people. Because, if I can take us back to England again, we know from the history of England that in the 15th century, say, the attitude to individual ownership was much as it is in Native American or Aboriginal communities today. You, can, you can't really own it. And so you had the situation in, let's say, southern England in the 14th and 15th century, where you had a village, 20 or so houses, and it, those were grouped around a set of fields, open fields, and maybe were themselves surrounded by more fields on which the villagers would graze their cattle or grow their lettuces or their turnips or their pigs in sort of until someone, some unknown person, realizing that the population of the village and by extrapolation, England was growing and that people could be fed more efficiently because. This open field system had all sorts of practical problems. The cattle would trample over the lettuces. The pigs would eat the turnips. So you needed to separate the one from the other. And someone, some unknown person, came up with the idea that rather than having open fields commonly owned, you would segment them. And this had a remarkable effect on farming. It suddenly became much more efficient. Then in 1604, which is a, a crucial date in this history, um, Parliament got involved and the force of law was applied to what had hitherto been a somewhat informal arrangement. And 1604, oddly enough, in a village very close to where I went to boarding school in Dorchester in Dorset, the village of Radipole, where I remember thundering around in cross-country races, which was a miserable place in my memory, um, that they passed the first printed enclosure bill and they tacked it up on the door of the church, which still exists today, 400 years later, saying in three months, this land is going to be enclosed into seven parcels. And 
these parcels will be owned by the following named people. Anyone's got any objections? Write to us in the Palace of Westminster. Whether they did or not, we don't know. But we do know that thus began the formal parliamentary-backed enclosure acts, of which there were then going to be some 5,000 until enclosure effectively ended in the 19th century, with most of England now privately held by individuals. Well, the, the social consequence of this was profound because those people in the village who had hitherto owned and grazed their cattle and their pigs and grown their turnips now had nowhere to do so. And so these people were classically dispossessed of their right to the common land. It was no longer common land. So what did they do? Well, they did effectively come the 16th and 17th centuries. They either left and went to the cities that were beginning to grow and come the Industrial Revolution in the 1770s really did begin to grow. So they would go to London or Manchester or Liverpool or Birmingham or wherever, or they would cross the seas across the Atlantic, or later on, after Captain Cook and such, you could go down to the Antipodes to these new colonial possessions that Britain had. But the irony is, and I'm sure we can talk about this later, is that these people had been dispossessed. They had in their minds this new idea of ownership to which they had fallen victim. And what was the first thing they did when they landed on these distant shores? They began dispossessing the people who already lived there. So it's a sort of cruel irony, all beginning with this policy of enclosure in England in the 16th century. You draw um, stories from ac across the globe for this book, but I think that that comparison between Britain and America does does make a very interesting um, case for comparison because we see very different stories unfolding in the way that land was dealt with and parceled up in the two. Um, how do you see those differences? Well, the, the differences are largely in the making of America um, of scale, in a way. I mean, mm -hmm. you America, gigantic and uncrowded. and But herein comes one of the sort of savage realities of land ownership. Um, I dedicate this book um, to a Native American called Standing Bear. Standing Bear was a Ponca, a member of the Ponca tribe, who originally live in what is now the state of Nebraska, slap bang in the middle of the continental United States. And the reason I dedicated it to him is that he was a sophisticated and intelligent agriculturalist, tribal leader, but it took until 1879 for him to take a case to the Supreme Court in Washington to have them declare formally that he was a human being entitled to civil rights. Because until that moment, and this is true not just of Native Americans, but also of Aboriginals and Maoris, they weren't formally recognised by the British to be human beings. They might as well have been squirrels or groundhogs or whatever. They were interesting, they were anthropologically fascinating, but they weren't human. They weren't entitled to the rights that you and I or others, settled colonialists, might think. So if there were no people there, if we arrived on a foreign shore, imbued with the concept of ownership and annoyed because we had been dispossessed by the people that had taken our land, we arrived in this new country and sure, there were these humanoids, if you like, there. And we said, well, they're not humans. So this land is legally terra nullius, 
nobody's country. So we can take it for ourselves without the, the need to ask anybody. Didn't have to ask permission. We felt that way in North America. Others felt that way when they arrived in Botany Bay and in what is now Queensland or New South Wales. And after 1840, what happened in New Zealand. So the concept of terra nullius is fundamental to what happened, what would then happen in the possession of land and the apportionment of land in the new world. Mm -hmm. Astonishing to believe, but a whole canon of law was built up on the basis of that. Um, I'm just intrigued by the way in which you talk about the use of law in debates around land ownership. So obviously you mentioned enclosure laws and then, of course, this legal definition of terra nullius. Do you see laws surrounding land ownership as, as a revolutionary moment that changed the way we thought about land? Or do you just see it as an extension of something that might have happened anyway? The answer to this question could take up this and many other <laughs> podcasts. I mean, land law is voluminous in extent. But I mean, at its most simple, uh, and simple is the perfect word to use here, because if I were to be a, a, own land, own a house, in England and Wales, I own that in fee simple. I mean, it's an expression which is archaic, but what it means is that I, I can own this land, I can have what is called the bundle of rights. In other words, I have the right to fell trees on it or uh, mine it or excavate it, sell it to somebody else, lease it to somebody else, or exclude anyone I wish from it. That's part of my bundle of rights. And yet, because I hold this land in fee simple, that is an acknowledgement that in fact, I don't really own it at all. The person that owns it is the queen. The queen owns everything, the monarch, the sovereign. And that tradition is common in most societies in the world. It's true in ancient or up to the revolution uh, 1949 revolution in China, true in Japan, because the emperor, the shogun, the imperial leader of those countries is seen as God's representative on earth, and God owns the land. Thereby, we're going full circle, which is what the Native Americans and the Aboriginals and the Maoris think. No human can own the land. But we have this conceit in England that, yes, all England is owned by God. God's representative is the Queen. So the Queen owns all of England. But you can own it in fee simple, and you can do with it what you will, what you wish, and you have all these rights. But deep, deep, deep down in the title history of your land is the acceptance that the Queen owns it, the monarch owns it. So this doesn't exist in the United States. That's an important distinction that if you own land in the United States, you own it. That's it. But it's one of the reasons why the law of trespass, which fascinates me, is so savagely applied in America. You can, in, if you're in Texas, you have as the bundle of rights the right to exclude people from your land. If you shoot someone who's on your land, the courts will look very sympathetically at you. Probably if you kill them, not charge you with murder death by misadventure, manslaughter or whatever, because you have an inalienable right to defend your land because you are the absolute title holder. There's no queen standing between you and, and God, as it were. And 
This has its fullest expression in other monarchies in Europe, in Scandinavia particularly, which is what I think is fascinating. There is essentially no law of trespass in Sweden, as an example. There is this and has been for centuries. The phenomenon which in Swedish, and my pronunciation is not good enough, of course, is Almansratten, which means all men's right. Everyone has a right, the perfect right protected by law, to wander about, so long as you behave yourself, on all the land in the country. You can't go into someone's private garden. You can't go into their house and demand a cup of coffee. But if they own 100 acres, you have an absolute right to wander over it. Behave yourself, but they can't say, get off my land. And that is because there's an acknowledgement that actually the land belongs ultimately to God, to the monarch, to the king or queen of Sweden. It's a very interesting phenomenon. It's very interesting indeed to see the different ways in which the system can develop in different places. You mentioned there about land in Britain being a property of the Queen. And I wanted to just ask you about the idea, especially in Britain and I'm sure elsewhere, of inheriting land by ancient or familial right. I just thought perhaps in the British case study particularly, how you think that that shaped the the history of the country, Uh, because I would argue it has done profoundly. I I would entirely agree with you. And of course, um, the the whole law of primogeniture in England, that everything goes to the oldest son, and then the next one goes into the army, and the next one goes into the church, and the fourth one goes to the colonies, Um, that's still extant. And uh, it means, it was one of the reasons, I suppose, that um, priests, Catholic priests were not allowed to marry, because then marriage would theoretically divide the land that the church owned again and again and again, and the church would not have any land left because all the priests would be marrying and uh, and distributing the land among their heirs and successors. So the best way to keep the Vatican in control of huge amounts of land, the church, which is, after all, in England, traditionally was just about the biggest landowner in the country, the queen, the church, and then the aristocracy, um, the same law applies in the aristocracy, engineered in a different way, that everything goes to the eldest son. And so, you know, the big estates, the Duke of Westminster, the Duke of Buccleuch, beggars belief, really, the way that they can hold on to these vast estates um, because of ancient, I mean, laws which go back to the 13th century. They're changing, as you will only be too well aware, thanks to the efforts of people like Nicola Sturgeon up in Scotland, that all of a sudden lands that have been owned for generations um, by one family, and I think in Scotland of the Duke of Buccleuch with his 225,000 acres up there, um, they're being chipped away. And I don't know if you've got time for me to explore the history of the island of Ulva. I mean, Ulva is a little island off um, off Mull, most attractive little place, little, 5,000 acres, big house plonked down in the middle, a lot of tenant farms thereabouts had been owned by one family for generations. Well, the descendant of that family, for a variety of family reasons, decided three or four years ago to sell it. And an island licked by the Gulf Stream, the warm waters of from the Bahamas, in the spectacular scenery of Western Scotland, with an adorable big house and attractive little farms. Serious money. Some, some Americans and Russians would be eager to pay for it. 
And so they did. He advertised in glossy magazines that publicized such things, Scottish Island for sale. And in came the helicopters bearing people with wadges of cash saying, we'd like to buy it for your asking price, four million pounds or something like that. And he was about to consummate a deal when the Scottish government stepped in and said, "Uh uh-uh, the new law says that individuals may not have first dibs on such sales. A community can be formed which can make a bid on this island. And so a hastily formed body of 20 or 30 people in Mull, the adjoining island, formed itself like a sort of amoeba in a couple of days, and they put in a bid and their bid was accepted. They bid four million pounds, the asking price, and the Scottish government said, well, we have the land fund, which is encouraging this transfer of land from individuals to communities. We'll give you three and a half million pounds of the purchase price from our fund. All you have to come up with is half a million pounds. Relatively trivial, and indeed a banker in Australia whose family came from the island of Alva chipped in, I don't know, two or three hundred thousand pounds, leaving the community in Mull with a trivial amount, sort of pocket change. They did it, they now own the island. The man who had owned it went away with a lot of memories and four million pounds cash in his pocket, and now a community owns Alva. And I had a message from Lady Wendy, who's the community manager, and she says, change is coming thick and fast. The house has been decorated and is being opened as a hotel or a hostel or something. The, ha- the farms, which have been neglected for years, are being refurbished. The population has doubled from six to 12. So, But we can possibly get 50 people here and a vibrant economy in a few years the place is coming back to life. So change is possible, but it's, uh, it needs radical government intervention, and in Scotland, that's what they've got. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And I will never forget the moment when we went up in the lift to the fourth floor and the doors opened, and there was a room like no other I've ever seen, a treasure house of globes and charts and maps and drawer after drawer after drawer, and we spent the next hour looking with rapture at these, this memorial to map-making at its very best. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Of course, the, the transfer of land ownership hasn't always been so peaceful. In fact, it's often been incredibly violent. I wonder if you could give some examples of that side of things. Well, uh, the, the obvious violence that... Uh, I know a reasonable amount of, because of where I live now is uh, the dispossession of uh, the violent dispossession of land from Native Americans. And the, the classic example is what is known as the Trail of Tears. Um, the $20 bill in this country still has the portrait of Andrew Jackson, who was the president in the 1820s, who ordered that because white farmers had come down to the, in the early part of the 19th century to the very fertile um, states of Alabama and um, northern Florida and uh, Georgia and Arkansas, where the soil from the Mississippi and the Ohio rivers makes the land generally flat, but also amenable to all sorts of agriculture, most notably the growing of cotton, um, why not, in the view of the president, should white farmers not settle here? There were, however, Indians. There were Seminole, there were Chickasaw, there were Cherokee. They were people who very um, condescendingly were known as the civilized tribes because they had recognizable forms of government. They um, had an advanced social system. They had slaves. I mean, it's an extraordinary thought that because they had slaves, they were regarded as, as civilized as white people. But these five civilized tribes were told, sorry, you've got to move. You've got to shift off the land, which they didn't own because of what we talked about at the beginning. But they did superintend. They did manage. They had lived there for thousands of years. And they were told to move. And so over the next few years, miserable groups of caravans of people, wagons, children, women, old timers, were forced to walk hundreds of miles westward, being guarded by soldiers as they did so, crossing the great rivers like the Mississippi into the land that had been assigned for them in what is now Oklahoma. Now, I live in Western Massachusetts. The Native Americans who live here are a group called the Mohicans. You remember the last of the Mohicans. Just a little bit further south, it's the Lenape, a little bit further north, it's the Mohawk, the Iroquois. But the Mohicans, are there any Mohicans around? No. Where are they? They're in Wisconsin, a thousand miles away, because using the same, perhaps less militantly organized, forcing out, these people were shifted off their lands, told to leave. Leave us, white people, to occupy and farm their lands, and they can go and live in Wisconsin. And slowly a movement is coming into focus in America where people are remembering what we did to these, not just 
the Chickasaw and the Cherokee and the Seminole in the southeast, but also the Mohawk and the Mohican up here in the northeast. And this may particularly, and I'll stop this in a moment, I promise you, with the appointment of Deb Haaland, the first ever Native American to be a cabinet member presiding over the vast Department of the Interior, which looks after American lands, the first ever Native American. I mean, this is revolutionary and may change, I hope, the attitude that white Americans have towards the Native people who were here long before and of whom we are merely, in my view, their guests. Um, Of course, another massive colonial um, shift that you cover in the book was the scramble for Africa and uh, the land grab involved in that. Obviously, it's a huge topic, but I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the legacy of that and how it's shaped the tangled history of land division on the African continent. It's a pretty unhappy story. I mean, I, I need not tell you, of course, about the savagery, the brutality, the awfulness of so many European powers in the, in the scramble for Africa. I mean, there is this risible cartoon from Punch, which we have in the book, showing Cecil Rhodes bestriding Africa in his big boots with one, his right hand foot, or right foot rather, in the Cape of Good Hope and the left foot up in Cairo, and all of the land beneath owned effectively, no longer by the people who live in Africa, but by white Europeans, of whom Cecil Rhodes was a classic um, exemplar. And the legacy of all that, when, you know, Harold Macmillan's winds of change, Europeans started to withdraw from Africa, and most of Africa now is entirely free from European rule. So what then happens to the land? Well, there have been different degrees of success in different places, and I tend to concentrate, because I used to live in Uganda, I tend to concentrate on East Africa, and the sorry story of of what happened in what used to be Southern Rhodesia, Uh, now Zimbabwe, um, where after a long protracted struggle, um, the British left, leaving this new country to fend for itself, but with a lot of white settlers who ran beautiful and very efficient farms, which employed a lot of African people, but nonetheless, they were white owned, which is understandably repugnant. So the scheme initially, which I thought was, was somewhat wise, was that the British would, the British government would set up a fund and the Zimbabwean government would seek to buy the white farmers out and replace them quite reasonably with with Zimbabwean farmers or black Zimbabwean farmers. And the money for the purchase of the farm from the white farmer would be supplied from London. And that seemed, you know, it was no, therefore, no charge to the Zimbabwean government. London paid the price, the British taxpayer paid the price, but one might say a small price to pay for what we had done to Africa over the over the years. But I, it all, the wheels fell off this particular plan because uh, the money that was transmitted from London to, to Harare, to the new capital of Zimbabwe, was mismanaged and went into the wrong hands. And then the transfer became sort of violent confiscation rather than transfer and is deemed today not to have been a success story. There was a lot of a lot of wounding and killing and unpleasantness and uh, the Zimbabwean agricultural economy um, took a nosedive as a result. 
Some countries have managed it rather considerably better. I mean, the French, whose colonial history generally is post-colonial history, um, not so much involving land, has been relatively successful. And in places like Côte d'Ivoire, land reassignation has gone rather well. In other places, Spanish colonies, most notably um, Equatorial Guinea, so bad, um, unbelievably corrupt and violent. So generally speaking, sadly, Africa is not a pretty picture. And there is, I believe, something like 500 million acres of African land, which is unclaimed, unfarmed, the subject of all sorts of contention, while a vast number of African people are living beneath the poverty line. I mean, this is a country so, a continent so incredibly fertile, at least sub-Saharan Africa is, and yet the agricultural situation is still unresolved because of the legacy of colonial land tenure. So one thing that I just wanted to ask you about was map making and how cartography has shaped our understanding of the lands that we live on. Is map making always apolitical? Is it a scientific endeavour or can it be a political one as well? Well, map making is tremendously uh, political. I mean, books, uh, Mark Monnier, I think, is the great author of how maps lie. Maps do lie. But there was this noble attempt that I write at at some length um, in the 1890s by a, a German a cartographer called Albrecht Penck, who decided that he thought the world should map itself and there should be a global effort to create a, a map of the entire planet at the scale of one to a million. And the sheets should all look identical, identical in colour, identical in typography, identical in scale, one to a million. And they would all be of a particular um, conic projection such that if you took tape and stuck them all together, you would have a map of the entire planet at a, a millionth the size of the planet, which is about the size of a large country house. And to make sure that they weren't politically biased, his plan, which he put to the International Geographical Congress, held, I think, in Bern in Switzerland in the 1890s, um, that countries should never map themselves. So the United States should map, let us say, China. Uh, Indians should map Brazil. Uh, the Portuguese should map Australia. And um, it happened. So the proposal was made from the headquarters in England, in Southampton, oddly enough, um, came the first maps. Then the First World War came. It would take about nearly 900 sheets to cover the whole land surface of the planet. And these beautiful, beautiful maps started to appear. Then came the First World War, by which time they had done about 100. Between the two wars, maybe another 400 were produced. Second World War, for a variety of reasons, the sort of energy of the scheme started to dissipate. And by the time they had produced about 850, needing only about another 50, the United Nations at a rather melancholy conference in Bangkok, they superintended the project then, said, let's pull the plug on it. There's no need for these maps. And there they were, 850 beautiful, beautiful sheets, which when you see any one of them, I mean, you just, if you like maps as I do, you just, they're wonderful things to behold. And I, for years, had wanted to find a complete set. And I searched high and low for years, I mean, all through 
the early 2000s. I couldn't find these maps and I wrote about them. And I had this idea that they might be in Wisconsin, but I went to the library in Madison, the capital. No, they were not. And then one day, about five years ago, I was on a book tour for another book, being driven from Madison, Wisconsin, back to Chicago via Milwaukee. And when we got to Milwaukee, my driver, Jack called Bill Young, who always takes me on these book tours in the Midwest, said, I'm really sorry, Simon, but you've been, you were going to be at Boswell's bookstore in Milwaukee, but a much more popular writer of thrillers has taken over the space, and you've been demoted to a room in a university building, which we're now drawing up to. And I thought, oh, God, well, you know, I'm a big boy. I can understand disappointment. And I will never forget the moment when we went up in the lift to the fourth floor and the doors opened and there was a room like no other I've ever seen, a treasure house of globes and charts and maps and drawer after drawer after drawer. And this wonderful lady called Marcy Bidney, who was the curator, she said, are you Simon? I said, yes. She said, well, I'm the curator. And I said, this is wonderful. You don't? She said, yes, I do. I said, yeah. Do you have? She said, yes, I know you've been looking at them for years, looking for them for years. We've got the complete set. And we spent the next hour looking with rapture at these, this memorial to map making at its very best, a memorial to this remarkable Albrecht Penck from the 1890s and when map making was a wonderful and non-nationalistic art. Most of what we've spoken about today has been cases in which land is an object of desire, something to try and um, acquire. But have there been any examples you can think of where land ownership or custodianship has been more of a burden than a privilege? That's a very interesting question. Well, <laughs> I mean, I wonder, the, the biggest landowners in the world, Gina Reinhardt, an Australian who owns 29 million acres, which is nearly the totality of land in England, um, Ted Turner, cable television mogul who owns two million acres of central uh, United States. John Malone, two million acres. I, I sometimes wonder whether their tax burden, because they have to pay taxes on these lands, um, makes their ownership it irksome. And all they're doing it for is really bragging rights and chest bumping. There is this extraordinary uh, magazine called The Land Report, which displays gigantic farms, which people, as you say, they sort of lust after. You see mountain ranges and rivers and all of this stuff. And then you own it and realise not only do I have to sort of manage it because nature is going to bring in tornadoes and droughts and do all sorts of damage to it unless you manage it, and you have to pay your taxes. And this is an interesting, and uh, it's a segue to, to your wonderful question, that perhaps partly because of that, but perhaps partly in connection with what I was talking about of the, of the at new attitude towards Native Americans, people particularly here in the northwest, northeast of the United States are beginning to think, perhaps I don't need to own 100, 200 acres because it's sort of irksome. I have to I... work it, I have to superintend it, I have to make sure it's kept in good order and I have to pay taxes. Why don't I give it away? Now, the Internal Revenue Service allows me to give it away at about five acres a year to a conservancy. And in my case, and I'm talking not about where I live in Massachusetts, but down in Dutchess County, New York, where I first owned a little bit of land, 
I can give it to the Dutchess County Conservancy. They now own it. They pledge they'll look after it in perpetuity. They will never develop on it. And people can have access to it, just as they do in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Finland. And that seems to me to be a wonderful development. It's noticeable in Massachusetts, in upstate New York, in Vermont. But here in the Northeast, where it's the sort of birthplace of relatively radical ideas, we are getting land being given back to communities. In other words, the people are owning the land just as the Native Americans used to think doesn't belong to any individual. This leads on quite nicely to what I was going to make my final question, which is what you see as the future of land ownership. New Zealand, the most recently discovered place, and I can use the word discovered here without opprobrium because it was discovered by the Polynesians 700 years ago, relatively recently discovered. So they lived there happily on land that they called Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud, because when the canoes saw this long white cloud in the distance which presaged the land that we now know to be New Zealand, um, they gave it this Polynesian name. And we, the British, came along, as we so often did, and said, oh, this looks nice, we'll have it. And we signed this treaty in 1840, the Treaty of Waitangi. Copies of it were taken by horseback all round New Zealand over the subsequent year. And effectively, all the tribal leaders of all the 60 or so different Maori families said, OK, the land that we had previously owned now belongs to Queen Victoria. And it seems bizarre. And under that arrangement, so New Zealand chugged along relatively happily for about 100 years. But then in the 1940s, after the Second World War anyway, Maoris started to quite understandably become restive and said, wait a minute, why should this land be owned by a monarch 10,000 miles away in London? And why indeed is our country a little England in the South Seas? It's daffodils, it's lawn bowls, it's cricket, it's warm beer, it is singing God Save the Queen. No. And this remarkable lady called Fina Cooper, elderly Maori lady, led a march from the very tip of the North Island down to the capital in Wellington in the 1970s, saying, this is ridiculous. You took away our land. We want it back. And slowly but surely, in the years since, with the establishment of the Maori Land Court and the establishment of the Waitangi Tribunal, the Maoris are starting to get some of the wrongs righted access to the seashore. The seashore used to belong to white people. Effectively now, it belongs to Maoris. Farms which used to be the sovereign property of English people are now in small numbers, too small a number for most Maoris, are returning to their traditional ownership. And in symbolic ways too. And the country is no longer named New Zealand on its own. It's now known as New Zealand Aotearoa. All of these things, together with land reform and respect for the Maoris, will, I believe, seep westwards across the Tasman Sea to Australia, and then I would like to think would seep further to the United States, to Britain, or to Britain, certainly. The United States is another matter. In so many ways, New Zealand seems to be a model country which we should all look at with admiration and respect. (laughs) 
That was Simon Winchester. His book, Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World, is published by William Collins and is on sale now. You can find a buying link in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us on Friday to hear Jerry Bottom on the murderous Renaissance artist, Benvenuto Cellini. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.